I learned in class today that in that passage of Scripture, there are five negatives. So the way that that would read, grandmother, is God is saying, I will never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. Grandmother looks at her grandson and she says, you know what, sweetheart, that is so good to know. But God saying it only once has always been enough for me. Isn't that really the truth of our lives? Can't our lives attest to that reality? We don't need five negatives to know that God will never leave us or ever forsake us. All we have to do is take a very brief reflection over the course of our life since we've met the person of Jesus Christ and we see His faithfulness flooding our memories. We see His faithfulness flooding our experiences. We see His faithfulness flooding our circumstances in wave after wave after wave. All the, the, the experiences of God's faithfulness are abundant, aren't they? I remember one time specifically when Hannah was approximately two years old We were told by a doctor that she would have to have surgery because she had a very, very serious and very relevant ear infection. That was going to require surgery. It was going to require time in the hospital. It was going to require a tube in her ears for a period of time. Now, that's traumatic enough for a two-year-old. In addition to that, my wife and I are younger. We're young in the ministry We don't have insurance and we definitely don't have the money to pay for something like that. We gathered around our daughter, we laid our hands on her and we said, God, if it would be Your will, would You touch her little body? Would You heal her for Your glory? Two days later, we took her to the doctor and the doctor said, it is gone. Now, I probably need to say, if God would have chosen to not deal with her that way, I would still be talking about His faithfulness. It would just be faithfulness in a, dip, in a different form. There have been countless times that I knew that God was calling me to short-term missions. God, I can't fund this. And God was faithful time after time after time. And you know that because if you're a child of God and you've been born again, God has showed that same type of faithfulness to you. And you know that you know that God will never, 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 never leave you or forsake you. Was that five? All right, cool. You were counting. (laughs) I want to talk to you this morning about one of the ways that God shows His faithfulness to His people. So this morning we're going to talk about developing a partnership in the Gospel. Now, I want to be clear. A partnership among each other through and in the Gospel. And I'm talking about the clearly articulated Gospel. The Gospel that is clearly articulated through our words. The Gospel that is clearly articulated with our lives. The Gospel that is clearly seen in our joy. The Gospel that is clearly heard in our counsel. Yes, beloved, that Gospel that has laid claim to the lives of people from every every tribe and every tongue and every nation, that gospel that we run to this day as believers in order to find our joy and our hope and our strength, 
That Gospel that reminds us that the same need that we had when we were sinners, God reached down and grabbed us and delivered us from sin and His very own wrath is the same Gospel that we still need today to be delivered from the ongoing bondage of sin. That's the Gospel that we need. Every one of us, sinners, saint alike. That's the Gospel that we must cling to. Season the new believers alike. And that's the Gospel we're going to talk about this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. The last time I spoke, we talked about Timothy. This morning, I want to try to capitalize on Paul and Paul's relationships. Not just Epaphroditus, but his relationships. I want to try to capitalize on that before we leave his relationships and go into chapter 3. I'm going to be a little broad this morning. And I pray that 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 serves you well. And more importantly, I pray that it glorifies God. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. And then we're going to read a little bit out of chapter 4. Philippians 2, 19 through 30. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in what? In the Gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it would go with me And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now I want to ask you to turn to chapter 4. Let's look at verses 2 and 3, and then 15 through 18. Paul goes on to say in 4.2, I entreat Eoda, and I entreat Suntiki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. Let's just pay attention to the details that define this relationship. I ask you also, true companion. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Verse 15 through 18. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. 
Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, and God, we would ask, how is it that you want us to live in community? God, how would you have us to serve one another? God, how would you have us to labor among one another? How would you have us to care for? Love, provide. How would you have us meet each other's needs, God? Father, we are desiring unity. And God, I pray that this morning that you would, by your grace and your kindness, and God, ultimately because of your faithfulness to yourself, God, you would reveal to us, show us, teach us, help us, God. Show us how it is, Lord God, that You would have us to live in this thing called community. Help us to be encompassed by the Gospel. Help us to breathe in Gospel air and breathe out Gospel truth to one another. And I pray that You would help us for Your glory. God, please be faithful to Yourself this morning through the communication of Your Word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Seems as if the Bible makes this huge assumption. Or perhaps better said, it seems as if the Holy Spirit makes a very strong and sound and relevant declaration. And the declaration seems to be that Christian relationships, or the declaration seems to be how Christian relationships are formed in times of joy and in times of trial, times of celebration, in times of distress. But it seems to make a declaration about how Christian relationships are formed when the people of God come together and they live the Gospel out among one another and how they live the Gospel out for each other. What declaration is the Holy Spirit making exactly? Well, let's look back on some of these passages that I've read. Let's look at Philippians 2.22, because Paul says of Timothy, he served with me. Okay, So immediately we have this idea of some type of companionship because Paul is a man of authority. And he's pointing out that Timothy is serving alongside him. He goes on to say about Epaphroditus in 2.25, he is my fellow worker. He is my fellow soldier. The word fellow means to be a companion in. So once again, we have this idea that they're kind of, they're companions together, they're working alongside one another. Paul also says of a certain believer in chapter 4 verse 3, many scholars aren't sure exactly who that believer is. Some say it's Epaphroditus. Some say it's Timothy. But he says, I ask you also true companion. 
The word companion is from a Greek word that means yoke fellow. So we immediately, once again, we're confronted with a certain type of imagery. We have this this wooden beam. It's U-shaped on either end. It's placed around the necks of a, of, of oxen so that they can move forward together. So that they're moving in the same direction. So that they're moving in the same pace. So what declaration is the Holy Spirit making about these relationships that are dominating this passage of Scripture? I think that Paul sums it up in chapter 4, verse 15 when he says this, Out of all of the churches in Macedonia, no one entered into... What's the word? Partnership with me other than you. You know, when I read a passage like this, I may be tempted to think that these are very unique relationships. I may be tempted to think that these types of relationships are designated only for the apostolic age as Christ is in the process of building His church and and the church is going to forge forward. I may be tempted to think that this is just the expected norm of the people of God, but the Bible calls these relationships fellowship. The Word of God says this is very typical. This is fellowship. Now, when I think of fellowship, I think about what we're doing right here, right now. When I think of fellowship, I might think about what we did before what we're doing right here, right now, as we're kind of mingling together, we're drinking coffee together, we're talking about our week. I may even think about what we're going to do after our time together as we enjoy of a meal together. And I'm not saying that fellowship isn't those things, but what I'm saying is the biblical suggestion is that fellowship goes way beyond those things. The word that Paul uses for partnership in chapter 4, verse 15, it's from the Greek word konoinia, which means fellowship. So any time that we see the word fellowship in the Bible, there's an immediate suggestion that there is a partnership that is being developed. There's a partnership that's being formed. You know this passage that we read week after week, Acts 2.42? It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayers, that word fellowship means partnership. So we could accurately restate this by saying that the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and partnership. They partnered up with the apostles' teaching. They partnered up with the implications of the apostles' teaching. They partnered up with the way that the apostles' teaching should be implemented into the body of Christ. They partnered up with everything that the apostles taught them in relation to the person of Christ as seen in the Gospel. It seems to have been a given in Paul's day that to be brought into a local church means to be brought into fellowship or partnership, which means, listen guys, God is calling us to share life in very deep, personal, intimate ways. And I want to make two very brief ideas. I want to throw them out there for us this morning. And it's these. I want to to suggest that partnership means two things for us. It means submission to each other, or the gospel among us. The second thing, I want to suggest is that it means strengthening each other 
or the gospel empowering us. So let's talk about submission to each other. Let's talk about the gospel among us. What does that look like? Well, let's go back to chapter or verse chapter two, verse twenty-two. Let's go back and let's reread that again. Paul says this, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. <clears throat> that word served, it means to submit. And I want you to notice that Paul does not say that Timothy submitted to him. Paul says that Timothy submitted with him. The picture that we have is Timothy is submitting his life alongside Paul's life. So we have that imagery once again of companionship, of that yoke being placed upon the both of them. 2.25 I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. Notice that Epaphroditus is not referred to as a subordinate worker or subordinate soldier, but rather a common equal companion to the Apostle Paul. And then once again in 4.3 Paul says, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Paul does not refer to these two women who are at odds with each other as being under him, as serving him. He refers to them as serving alongside him, side by side. It seems like for two chapters, the Apostle Paul has established a template for us to live by. By saying to us, by teaching us that the Christian life is others oriented. But I think we need to stop there because that can be a little deceptive. Lions Club is others oriented. There's many organizations that are others oriented. The people of God, the church of Jesus Christ will only be as others oriented as they are saturated by the gospel. Because the gospel among us makes clear that we're always in recognition and remembrance of what our true need is. Listen, I know what you need. And the reason that I know what you need is because I know what I need. I need to know that right now, in my current circumstance, regardless of what life is looking like, I need to know God is caring for me. Because it doesn't feel that way all the time. Sometimes I feel kind of alone. Sometimes I'm kind of feeling like I'm running the race, looking to the right and to the left, and there's nobody running alongside. You ever feel that way? We need to know that. I need to know that. You need to know that. You need to know this morning that you're being cared for, because maybe you don't feel like you are being cared for. You need to know that God loves you, because maybe, and maybe it's a fault of our own, maybe we've lived such a way this week that we feel like there's no way that God could be pleased with me. Let me tell you, let me tell you why we need the gospel among us. Because the only antidote for those types of ideas is the reality of the gospel. That we would look back and realize that yes, God does love us. Yes, we do have worth. Not because God determined we were worthy to die for, but because God gave us worth when He sent His Son and He showed His love to us by dying for us on the cross. So we always are called to look back to the cross, look back to the Gospel. And we're so thankful that Paul knows what the church needs too. Paul knows that the church needs to continually hear the truths of the gospel. That the people of God need to continually 
hear the truths of the gospel. So what's my responsibility? My responsibility as we keep the truth of the gospel and the gospel ever among us, my responsibility is to submit to your need to hear the gospel. Submit to your need by clearly articulating the gospel with my mouth. Submit to your need by clearly articulating the gospel with my life. Submit to whatever your need is by clearly articulating the gospel with my counsel. That's what I need from you. Do you love me? If you love me, please, please don't tell me that every, please don't always tell me that everything's going to be okay because it may not. What I need you to tell me is the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel that says, even if it's not okay, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God until the day of redemption and there's nothing that can take you from the hand of God. That's what I need to hear. If you truly love me, what I need to hear more than anything is not necessarily, hey Moon, you're a good person. No, don't tell me that. Tell me the truth of the gospel. There's nothing good within me. In the very recesses of my heart, I am nothing but pure wretchedness. And the only thing that causes me to be good is Christ's righteousness that clothes me. And it is that and that alone. That's what I need. That's what you need. We need the truths of the gospel. Now listen, I appreciate, I appreciate Paul teaching us. We need doctrine. We need, we need that truth taught to us. I appreciate Paul establishing that template for our lives. But Paul takes the next step of adding life to doctrine by showing us through his example of what it means to submit to and serve each other in the body of Christ. Listen, doctrine without example does nothing but lead to Christian duty. It's when doctrine is accompanied by example that doctrine is projected as having this great type of worth. Only then. Only then. Can you imagine if I spent time trying to talk to my daughters and tell them about, talk to them about personal purity? or personal holiness. And I tried to establish, listen girls, there's worth in this. And then I turn around and ask them to leave the room because something inappropriate is coming on television and I'm going to kind of lag behind and watch it. See, what I would do at that point is I would project, I really don't place that much worth on this idea of purity that I'm talking about at all. So Paul is placing great worth on this idea of mutual submission. Paul is placing great worth on this idea of keeping the gospel among us by living it out as a man of authority. When we talk about biblical submission to one another, of course, first and foremost, we're talking about the need to submit to God, right? We will submit to each other depending upon the manner in which we submit to the Lord. When we talk about submitting to the Lord, when we talk about submitting to one another, when we talk about the need to submit to one another, we're usually at a disadvantage right off the bat. Now, of course we know that one of the reasons for that disadvantage is due to our sin nature itself. The Word of God talks to us and tells us that we need to submit to one another and the whole time my flesh is wanting to rise up and be seen and be heard. In addition to that, we live in a culture that urges us to assert our rights. But there's another reason that I think we're kind of at a disadvantage when it comes to this idea of submitting to one another. 
And I think it's because we don't usually as a practice or we don't usually as a discipline confront this need to submit to the Lord or to one another until we're right engaged in the heat of the battle. It's kind of like me waiting until I get extremely angry and then saying, okay, I need to kind of deal with anger here. Or it's kind of waiting until lust creeps itself up in my life, in my heart, in my mind, somehow, some way, and then saying, you know what? Maybe I should have dealt with this. Okay? It's kind of like me having a dialogue with my children, for example. We're in the heat of the battle, the heat's cranked up, the flesh is alive, the flesh is wanting what it wants, they're wanting what they want. And I'm sitting here saying, in the midst of that circumstance and framework, at that point I'm saying, hey, listen, you have to learn to submit to me right now. It's kind of like me having a dialogue with my wife. Her flesh is rising up, my flesh is rising up, we're having a disagreement, she's probably right. And at that point, at that point in the heat of the battle, I say, hey, listen, you just need to let me lead and you need to submit to me. Or that moment when the flesh is alive and the flesh wants wants what it wants and the heat of the battle and my flesh is crying out and I'm wanting to do what I want to do. And my wife says, listen, it's at this point that you need to stop and let the Lord lead us. I think I think the Christian life is a life of premeditated acts of dealing with sin. And I believe that Paul takes great steps to articulate the need for the gospel to be among us. Listen, he articulates it with his mouth. He articulates it with his with his counsel. He articulates it with his life. Every breath that he breathes, he's breathing the gospel. Let's look at that. One five. Paul remembers the Philippians because of their partnership in the gospel. One seven. Paul says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of what? Of the gospel. One twelve. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance what? The gospel. One sixteen. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. One twenty seven. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, 2.22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel, 4.3, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, 4.15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me seems as if Paul is saying, rather than confronting and dealing with this idea of submission in the heat of the moment, our lives are to continually be being shaped by keeping the gospel among us. By making sure that the gospel is the air that we're breathing. By making sure that we're clearly articulating the gospel, the true gospel with our mouths. That we're truly articulating the gospel with our very lives that we're truly articulating the gospel with the words that we say. And as we see 
as we see that each of our need revolves around one, the one and only thing, the gospel. What's that mean? Well, for Paul it means, hey, listen, I'm sending Timothy and he's coming. For the Philippian church it meant, look, Paul's got a need, we're sending you. Epaphroditus is going. For Paul it means, listen, time to go back to the, to the Philippian church, Epaphroditus, and he goes. It means that when I see you, and when you see me, and we know that we're dealing with loneliness, we're dealing with pain, we're struggling in our marriage, it means that I submit to your need. And you know what, guys? We can talk about this and we can implement this all we, all we try to, but there is still a reality in place, and it's this. We still need God's faithfulness. More than we need anything else, we still need God's faithfulness. It's no matter that Paul, it's no wonder that Paul says what he does in Ephesians 5. As a matter of fact, I want to ask you to turn there with me. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. And let's start in 18. Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, what's it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It's getting ready to lay it out for us. To be filled with the Spirit means this. It means addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It means to be filled with the Spirit means that there's such an overflow of the presence and the joy of God that that overflow manifests itself in a constant song of worship, a constant praise on my mouth. Number one. Twenty, it means giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It means that thankfulness is at the heart of the overflow of that joy. But there's a third thing that being filled with the Spirit means in 521. It means submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you want to be a person that submits to one another, the Bible is telling us that we have to be a people that are that are filled with the Spirit of God. Now, Paul's going to go on to say and go on and say, "Wives, now submit to your husbands." And there's never a command for a husband to submit to his wife. There's never a command for a parent to submit to his child or their child. But there's always a command for a man of God or a woman of God to submit themselves to the needs of others, and that's what Paul is talking about. But there's something else that I believe that Paul's saying in this passage, and he's saying that we are to strengthen each other, and that's the gospel empowering us. Let's look in verse 15 of chapter 4. Let's start there, and let's read this together, and then we'll kind of sum up. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me, in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The gospel empowering us. Now listen, as we talk about this, we have to have a right theology to believe that idea. In order to believe that it is the gospel that is empowering us, or the gospel that is strengthening us, 
or the gospel that is changing us, or the gospel that is meeting our needs, or the gospel that is ministering to us where we are. We have to have a very sound theology. We have to have a right theology about Paul's suggestion of relationships. We have to have a right theology about all of these interconnected relationships that we're reading about. Because these relationships that we're reading about right here, right now, they will determine the theology that we develop in relation to how God is calling us to live. Are these relationships the result of men's efforts? Or are these relationships the result of something greater than men's efforts? Listen, I have a hard time believing that men's relational efforts result in a fragrant offering. I have a hard time believing that men's efforts result in a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, don't get me wrong. Epaphroditus, he is a man's man. Okay, The Philippian church has said, listen man, throw this leather backpack on, we're giving you a monetary gift to take to Paul. Here's some other things that we want him to have as he is ministered to by you on our behalf Brother, go. And so Epaphroditus makes this 40, 50 plus day journey to go and to minister to the Apostle Paul. He is indeed a man's man. And on the surface, I want to say, way to go Epaphroditus. On the surface, I want to praise this man. But you know what the reality is? It is God. God is the one that is being faithful. God is the one that is being faithful to the Apostle Paul through a man. There was a time when Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane and He was asking the disciples to stay awake and to pray and to watch. And they wouldn't. Twice Jesus goes back and He says, My soul is sorrowful to the point of death. Stay awake with Me. Watch with Me. Pray with Me. And they didn't. And God sent an angel to strengthen Christ. You see, Christ is the one that knows exactly what the Apostle Paul is going through. Christ is the one that knows exactly what the Apostle Paul needs. And it is the Gospel that is enabling enabling men to now do what they couldn't do before. Men can now go and they can minister to other men because of the reality of the Gospel. Christ is the one that can identify with the need. And you know what? You know that. You know that through your experience because that's exactly how God has been faithful to you. You can think of times when you have been lonely. You can think of times when you've been lonely in the ministry. You can think of times when you've felt like your marriage is very shaky. There's been times there's been health issues creep in. There's been so many occasions that so many different things have happened. There's been times you've been so uncertain about so many things. And then before you know it, and almost assuredly, Here comes someone. Here comes someone and they're bringing good news. Here comes someone and they're encouraging you. Here comes someone and they're assuring you that all is well. Here comes someone and they're they're telling you not what you feel like you need to hear. They're not ministering to your heartfelt needs. They're not telling you things like it's going to be okay. They're telling you what you need to hear and what you need to know through the gospel. And it doesn't matter if it's somebody like Vicki Mankin who's not here, who had a blood clot, 
sackcloth and her boast is the church rallied around me. Or a dear brother that we have with Kim and the family comes together and says, the church rallied around me. Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you what, let me tell you what dominantly was taking place. God was being faithful. God was the one that was ministering to that need. Yes, it may have been in the mask of people. It may have been in the form of Epaphroditus. But God is the one who is being faithful. God is always the one that it really is always God. Always. Second Peter 1.3 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. Went to a marriage conference and uh, Paul Tripp was leading it. He referred to this passage of Scripture. Now, of course, he's talking in the context of marriage and he's saying, listen, wives, your greatest need if we're going to stick to what the word need means, and need means something that's essential for life, okay? If we're going to stick to the idea of what you need, wives, you cannot say, I need my wife to love me the way Christ loved the church. Now, that would be a great thing. It would be a great added bonus. But the reality is, according to Peter, we've already been told that you have all things already that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called you. You already have all things through the Gospel. And then he went on to say, men, listen, you don't need, if we're going to stick to the word need, need being something that's that's essential to life, you don't need your wives to respect you. Now that would be nice, and that would be an added bonus in this thing called marriage. But God has said that you already have all things that pertain to life and godliness through the Gospel. See, the way that God is calling us to interact with each other is to remind ourselves that we already have all things that pertain to life and godliness through the reality of the Gospel. Listen, we're confronted with the reality that God loved us, that God sent His Son, and that God poured out His wrath on His Son. Our greatest need is still the same, to run back to the cross. To run back to that place where where we first met Christ and God confronted us with our sin. I want to ask you if you would to please bow your heads this morning. <clears throat> in, in John 17, um, Jesus prayed that we would all be one. He prayed for unity. And then he goes on to make the statement that the purpose of this unity would be that the world would believe. Jesus didn't pray that there would be unity for unity's sake. Jesus seems to be confronting the reality that there's division that's existing among the people of God. And that that unity would be such a strong suggestion of the things that Christ taught the disciples. He seems to suggest that that unity would be so crucial in confronting an unbelieving world. And I really believe that that's the message that the Apostle Paul is is bringing forth to us now. Guys, what we need more than we need anything else 
is we need to learn to submit to each other because of the gospel that is being held high among us. Because the gospel is what continues to remind us of our need. Father, I would ask that that You would help us, Lord. That You would come to us. That You would awaken us with our need for the gospel message, Father. And I just pray this morning, Lord, that if there is someone here who is in some way, some 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 form struggling with the realities of life, that God, because of Your faithfulness, You'll remind them that they are resting in Your righteousness, righteousness as the children of God. So Father, do that work. Do that work in us today. Do that work for us today. And I pray that that's where we would find all things in common. God, we're so different. We may have come from different sides of the tracks, Lord. Different backgrounds. Different educations. We're, we're defined and marked by, by differences. Lord, bring us together through the reality and the power and the truth of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name.